Okay, so thank you very much, everybody. It's great to see you again. Hope you had a really good lunch. Um, I know some of you said you were doing the slow position during that chair yoga on the sofa. Fair enough. It's still a sort of exercise, isn't it? Um, session four for today, traveling and bridge between the imagination and the impossible. And we're going to start with Ambridge, imaginary place or place of the imagination, which to me sounds like a very contentious title, actually. And that's over to Gareth for that one. Thank you. Dunno. Dunno. Are you in the room, Gareth? I thought I did see you earlier. Gareth, you're muted. There, is that better? Got yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that was a bit difficult. And now I've lost track of my presentation. Here we go. I'll just click on share screen so everybody can see what's on my screen. If I can find it. There. You wouldn't believe I work with Zoom every week, would you? Um, there we go. As Cara says, the notion that um, there's a difference between imaginary places or place of the imagination, or indeed the notion that Ambridge might be an imaginary place, is a little bit challenging. But I hope what I'm going to do this afternoon is talk about places of the imagination as a concept that's used to help to understand the tourism industry and that's used as a concept to help to understand our own minds and our own reactions to places. If you'll forgive me, that's not working. So I am that legendary person who has a problem with the slides in the middle of their presentation. It's always going to happen to somebody. It's happened to me. By way of introduction, I should explain that I'm a postgrad at Manchester Met University. I'm also um, the town clerk of Berwick-upon-Tweed which is the most northerly town in England. So I have a foot in both camps, both as an academic and what would be academic perhaps, and as a professional who's interested in these issues. My first degree was in law, but mainly these days, I look after small towns. And as a case study to explore ideas of what constitutes a place and what distinguishes places of the imagination from imaginary places, I think Ambridge is just about perfect. There, I've caught up. You shouldn't have been able to see the slides that are on my screen. Okay. I think it's also important to reference why I'm doing this. There's a thing called engaged scholarship, which is very fashionable at the moment with the government and other people, with the idea of using academics in their studies to actually engage with the real world. And a lot of the people I study with are people like Kathy Parker and Nikos Natunis, who are actually driving the High Street Task Force, which is trying to change Britain's towns for the better and as a key focus of government policy. Now, this isn't the first time that I've actually engaged with the archers as an idea. I learned to love the archers through a project I worked on about six years ago with a local authority called the Charltons, which unfortunately the local authority didn't pick up. And the idea was that we'd create a family of people who lived in Northumberland, who'd be able to actually be stars of their own digital soap opera on social media, podcasts and the like, to actually get engagement messages out to the wider world. Like I said, the local authority didn't pick that up, but it got me thinking about why we love the Archers so much, and why if the Archers was merely a functional tool of spreading information, it's lasted for 70 years, and has got such a place in our imagination as a society. I suppose I should throw in a definition of place there, because it's a word that we all know but sometimes we all have different meanings for it. I'm defining place as a spatial location that has meaning for people. So it's not just a dot on a map. So if you think about it, maps are made up of millions of dots. It actually is somewhere that we socially construct and that we actually give it a meaning. There's a geographer called John Wright who was writing about 1947, who said that when we look at a medieval map and it says terror incognita, we read it as land that we know nothing about. But you can also read it as land that we're not interested in because it doesn't have anything that attracts us. And so we just say, nothing there of any interest, just ignore it. Now, imaginary places is also an idea that's got quite a long history now. 
I didn't know this until a few weeks ago, that there's a dictionary of imaginary places written by a couple of American academics, which lists all the places in science fiction and the like that have been created from Tolkien's Middle Earth to Dune and so on. And there's actually a tradition of that in the tradition of speculative fiction of actually exploring these places that are entirely imagined. But if you can have imaginary places, you must have categories for all the other places as well. That kind of led me to this issue about maps again. I put two maps on the screen here. One is a map of Ambridge, and we'll quickly gloss over what kind of place that is, because that's the punchline of this talk. The other is a map of central Manchester, and you'll see on the centre of the map it's labelled Gay Village. Now, when I worked in a pub on Canal Street in Manchester 30-odd years ago, it wasn't called the Gay Village, it was called that slightly run-down place at the back of the coach station. It only became the Gay Village because of how people engaged with it and changed it and shaped it by their interactions with it to now it's a location on a map that you can buy. It's even got street signs. So places change and places shift over time as a result of what people do. And the idea that place is fixed and permanent is actually a myth. A lot of this is built on the work of a French philosopher called Henri Lefebvre. Um, Lefebvre evolved this triad that he uses to explain how we make space out of locations. And he came up with these three categories about the space we lived in, the way that space is perceived, and the way sometimes it's conceived as well, because as a little needless personal detail, I grew up in a new town in South Wales. Now, one of the problems in new towns is the long-term projects. The town was created 62 years ago and people are still arguing about whether it's been a success or not. And that's why actually talking about Ambridge is really helpful because it provides us with a lens through which we can actually examine some of these ideas about places and what they mean and how they're experienced. Derek Walcott, who's a, the poet from Guyana, said, and I think he was being ironic at the time, that all culture begins in cities. Now, I think he was being ironic and he's pointing up the colonial mindset. But I think that until the invention of the internet, urbanization was the most effective mechanism for the transmission and the homogenization of culture. Since urbanization, we've had mass media like the BBC, but now, of course, we live in the internet age. And if you look at the work of sociologists like Manuel Castells, both the technology of transmission and the personal relationships through which we experience culture are referred to as networks. It's almost as if they've become the same thing. And because of the internet, because of what we're doing now, with me sitting down in a rundown former mining town in Northumberland, talking to people all around the world, the networks have actually possibly usurped the role of urbanization as that efficient transmitter of culture. Now, that might seem like I'm drifting a long way from places of the imagination, but that's a phrase that a, a Dutch geographer called Steen Reinders came up with because he was talking about the way in which our ties to specific places give us the chance to relocate in place a sense of belonging, which has otherwise been shifted into the textual space of media consumption. Now, that's quite dense and it's quite complex. But what Reinders was talking about was the way in which, having read texts and consumed them, we seek to go to the places where the texts are set. Now, when I was thinking about Ambridge, one of the things that struck me is there isn't an Ambridge experience. You can go to the Coronation Street experience. You can take a tour of Morse's Oxford. You can walk in the footsteps of the Stars of Heartbeat in Goatland in North Yorkshire. There's never been that. And actually from reading Smethwick, who wrote the, the kind of history of the archers, it's clear that the reverse happened. It wasn't that people wanted to go to Ambridge, they wanted to bring Ambridge to their village, to their town. So papers like the Western Daily Press would run competitions, be Ambridge for a day. Personally, I can't think of anything worse, but that's another story. Um, but the way that people react like that tells us something about their attachment to places, our attachment to places, because I'm not outside of this process. 
Um, I've chucked in there a photo of the, people always think when they see this photograph that it's the set of Heartbeat. Take aside the Ford Anglia, that's actually what Gothland Village Shop now looks like all year round. The experience of the media has transformed the actual village so it was, was the village shop is now a stage set and they haven't actually got a village shop. So that's something that's very much about the way in which media create and change culture. I'm not going to do thoughts about fandom in as much detail as is on the slide, although I'll share the slides later, because I do think the archers have been at the forefront of what's almost a, a revolution in fan engagement. But the thing I wanted to emphasize is that what's happening here today is the exact opposite of what happens in Morse's Oxford. In Morse's Oxford, the fans are customers, they're consumers. They walk around Oxford and they consume Oxford as a project, a product rather. Whereas what you're doing here is actually co-creating Ambridge. You're almost curating an idea of Ambridge that's been going for 70 years. Rinders talks about there being a symbolic boundary between an imagined and a real world. And he introduced the term place of the imagination, albeit in French, because obviously he's a philosopher and using plain English would be far too difficult. But that took me back to Godfrey Baisley, who was the first editor of The Archers. And I thought, what was Baisley imagined Ambridge to be? And the answer, of course, is the show's called The Archers. He was making a drama about people, not places. And so the place has always been shaped to fit the drama, not the other way around. That's why you can have, for instance, extra bedrooms appearing or disappearing from buildings at any time, because there's no fixed reference point. So I was at a, an impasse with thinking about this and thinking about how you categorize Ambridge. And then I came into a, a piece of work by an Indian academic called Dimple Marawi. And they were talking about the experience of people who'd been relocated as a result of Indian partition in 1947. And they appropriated a Welsh word, hiraith, to talk about that longing for a place that never was, that you can never return to, and may never be. It's the idea of home. And that chimed with an idea from Peter Jukes about how urbanization always causes nostalgia. I think he said it the other way around that nostalgia was the inevitable product of urbanization. In English, you don't have a word for hiraith. They do in German, Zehnsucht. They do in Portuguese, Sodad. But funny enough, English doesn't have a word for it. And I'd argue that Ambridge is a place of imagination for a very specific kind of imagination, which fits the Welsh word hiraith. And at that point, having lost my notes on screen and done that completely off the top of my head for 15 minutes, I'm going to stop. Happy to take Bloody well done, Gareth. That was amazing for just riffing. That was fantastic. There is no uh, tech problems that uh, we can't uh, <laughs> no, punch over. No, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a massive fan of yours, Gareth, being a place person. It's a shameless plug for my own book, The Rightly Time Book of Placemaking. Just that. Yeah, I'm coming email. to the launch online. <laughs> <laughs> but I am. I mean, that was really, that was such a good shot around some fantastic core urban, you know, sort of place theory. Um, and, you, you know, your contribution to the Saturday omnibuses as well is really enjoyable. Thank you so much for that. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, Bill Banks-Jones, you said something about Cornish. Do you want to quickly unmute yourself before we go into the next paper? Yeah, only to say Hireth is the Cornish word for this thing, except you can't go back there. It's what all Cornish people have when they want to go home. Okay. Hi, Brilliant. Great. So there's a bit of a change to the... Um, oh, sorry, Gareth, go on. Somebody's asking about links. What I'll do later on in the group on Facebook is I'll drop in a link to my blog, which I'll have a bibliography by about Monday. Great. I put a post in the Facebook group as well that's just sort of entitled reading list. And so any links that people have got to swap them into that, so they're all in one place. Fantastic, thank you. Right, we're gonna keep the pace on. A change to the, um, what's printed in, the, in your schedules. In, we've now got Isabel Duxfield. 
who I believe is in the room. Do you want to unmute? Hello. I'll start my video. Hello. So uh, I have some slides um, with some very dodgy GIFs. So bear with me. I shall start. Um, so my presentation is, so I'm exploring, I suppose it has kind of been done to death, but uh, domestic abuse storylines in the Archers. But I am, so I have just finished uh, doing a gender studies master's um, and I am exploring uh, the storyline in relation to the idea of public and private and how our, this public and private dichotomy has, um, um, has, uh, sorry, let me just share my screen, has continued to restrict our ability to fully comprehend and tackle um, domestic abuse. Um, so I'll start from the beginning. Uh, could you all see my slides? Look good. Fantastic. Right. So here we go. So. Dun, dun, dun. Um, Okay, so let me just get you guys off. I'll do this. Um, so as I said, so you're probably all aware of the impact um, Helen's ordeal had on the engagement with the topic of domestic abuse. So we've, you know, there have been multiple very, very good academic papers um, talking about the increased um, attention it gave uh, to the subject and people's ability to engage with the subject as well. Um, but what I want, as I said, what I want to put is why the storyline is important for shifting conceptualization of domestic space, private, and therefore outside of state intervention. So, you know, why the police won't are, you know, unable to go into people's homes, why they don't really want to tackle the um, concept of the domestic abuse. Um, and so I kind of explore how the storyline achieves this and why radio is a really unique medium for doing this in a way that actually academic studies can't quite access. Um, and then also I finish in, you know, exploring the importance of building on this storyline to understand aspects of domestic abuse that it fails to comprehend. So not all victims are white middle class farmers. Um, so quick background. So what the Archers means to me, this is a picture of me, which is a few hours old, listening to the Archers through my headphones. Um, and so for me, um, the Archers has been you know, a really interesting way for me to engage with gender studies even before I started, you know, talking to my mother and my grandmother, discussing storylines um, was always really important to me. Um, so that's why I wrote this. Um, so rewiring the wireless is the radio feminist tool. So, so Kid says that radio is a force for popular representation, negotiation and mobilization. So the radio and radio drama has been used quite widely as our participatory instrument for reshaping the ways we look at gender and especially intimate partner violence. So there, it's not just the archers that have done this, you know, this builds on a long lineage of radio dramas who are doing similar things. So here there's one called Soul City. So in, um, in South Africa, so it's a radio drama and it's about, it tried to disseminate knowledge about identifying domestic violence um, and then how to get yourself out of that situation in a similar way that the Archers tries. And interestingly, um, the Archers also, the producer of the Archers also worked on a different program um, based in Afghanistan called New Home, New Life, which does a similar thing, which challenges practices like forced marriage. Um, and so as we can see, this is, you know, reaction to the Archers. Um, with a similar thing. Um, this is my fantastic gift. Um, took me all of five minutes. Um, so what it, you know, as we all have explored before, so the storyline between her and Rob really explores patriarchy as a strategy. So we move away from quantitative paradigms of tallying violent acts um, towards ideas of coercive control. So that is uh, routinized assault, threats, humiliation, intimidation. Um, and it's actually the most common context in which women are abused and often the most dangerous. Um, but it is, it is still, even though there has been significant reform, it is still systematically disregarded by penal codes. Um, so, oh God. Um, <laughs> so what this gives is a systematic analysis of violence, the process um, enabled by a matrix of oppression and patriarchal association. Um, so we move towards um, intimate partner violence, um, so which is a 
kind of, so gender and gender studies has done a lot of work around redefining domestic abuse. Um, so kind of tracing the multiple embodied techniques um, of subjugation. Apologies for the dog. Um, oh my God. Um, so as we said before, so coercive control actually only became a crime in the UK in 2015. Um, and actually that, that stuff that follows a really long history of an reluctance to change laws around um, domestic violence um, because the home is seen as a space, a, a private space away from uh, the intervention of the state. Um, so we see violence, so through the storyline, through Helen and Rob, we see violence as a structuring principle, so from cooking to shopping to sexual activity, Helen is controlled and coerced across her everyday movements. Um, so this is essential for understanding patriarchal domination as situated, um, yet simultaneously enacted within a continuum diffused across time and space. Um, so male dominance isn't just through um, physical acts of violence, but it's continued coercion that continues, you know, we see the story play out across two years. Um, so it doesn't just occur on the body, but through it. So it's an iterative, iterative performance of patriarchy. So why I think that the radio is in a really unique position to be able to do this, so this continuum of violence, is that actually it accesses places and spaces that researchers can't. So if we think about traditional research into violence and even into continued co coercion, um, and this idea of intimate partner violence. Lots of researchers tried to use longitudinal studies, so that is following participants over a certain time period. Um, but equally, these researchers can't actually access um, sites of intimate partner violence. Um, so, you know, we can't, uh, on the radio, we are in the room with Helen, we're in their bedroom, we're in their kitchen. Researchers can't necessarily do that. And while, you know, this is a fiction, we are kind of in the spaces, it feels like a piece of research for doing yourself. Um, so chronicling Helen's experiences over a two year period, weaves together individual acts of control, exposing a structure of systemized domination, which I argue that researchers can't actually do um, on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so here comes the main point, is dismantling the private and private. So my argument is, one of the primary ways it achieves this is dismantling the conceptual divisions between public and private. So for decades, um, arguably centuries, the idea of, of the private sphere was feminine, a space beyond the realms of judicial oversight. Um, and that's really inhibited domestic violence reform. So if we think about, you know, rape within marriage wasn't considered illegal because it was in, it was in the, within the home. Um, and as we know, women are most likely to face violence at home, not in public. Therefore, this this, this conceptual division is actually really, really, um, it's a really violent division. Um, so rather than locating the domestic as an independent zone, isolated from external politics, feminist approaches increasingly are trying to see domestic abuse um, outside of this, highlighting how legal jurisdiction reproduces gendered subject positions and reinforces patriarchal control within the home. Um, so what my argument is from, her, I call this from home to home. So I don't know where you listen to the archers. I listen to, you know, in my kitchen, um, going on walks, as we've all been doing for a while, even in the bath. So what I argue is that from out, it's from my home to Helen's home. So the archers penetrates the home in a way that dismantles this dualism. It achieves this not so much through the storyline itself, but physically bridging public radio, bridging public radio with the intimacy of the domestic. So we are we are consuming the storyline from our own private spaces. And this visceral immediacy between Helen's character and the audience arose this private isolationism of the home. And as I said, even though it is fiction, it merges the fictional real life domestic spaces. So encouraging the audience to reflect on their own experience of violence in the home. So Helen's experience isn't, it's no longer a matter of a private concern, but for the entire nation. Um, so I argue that it shatters this illusion of domestic spaces. Um, but what I'd like to just finish by thinking about um, how it can or does not account for intersectionality. Um, so for those who haven't quite come across this term before, intersectionality is a term used and abused across feminist literature, um, but it is really important for considering this. 
so what I'm arguing here is that without denying the validity of Helen Archer's story and its value as a springboard for reproducing public awareness, um, it's one woman's ideal. It is a feminine experience, not the feminine experience. And it's really important for understanding, here's my lovely gift, understanding how race, sexuality, class, all have implications for response to violence and the rhetoric used to discuss violence. So this has been explored quite widely across queer and um, race studies. Um, so Collins uh, notes how circumscribed characterizations of the African-American woman as sexually deviant denies their legitimacy as rape victims. So she compares the ways that um, African-American women are discussed as victims of domestic abuse versus their white counterparts because of the idea of femininity that has been attached to them. Um, and again, Bowman examines this in low-income inner-city women, um, and she shows how the inability of these women to access alternative accommodation inhibits their willingness to escape violent relationships. So, you know, if we think about Helen's character who has a fantastic family support network, even though she doesn't feel she's able to access that, she really does, and she has an alternative to leaving Rob, um, and she uses that, um, but, you know, it takes a while. Um, but actually a lot of women don't have this alternative. And so how can a storyline, what I'm arguing is a storyline is really, really good for accessing these ideas about domestic abuse, but how can we understand that not everyone shares the same experience and how can we then design services, not just around a single woman, but around all these multiple experiences. Um, and actually, so in the UK where BAME women are actually more likely to experience domestic abuse, this is really, really important. Um, and so what I'm ar arguing is political responses are underpinned by the discourses which configure them. Um, and so the Archers has the capacity to facilitate this inter intersectional action. And that's my slide. Uh, let me try and stop sharing. I can't stop sharing. Thanks very much, Isabel. Thank that's you. Great. I mean, the only thing I would slightly take you to task is we have had intersectionality three times today. <laughs> We've had the virus referred to as intersectional <laughs> in terms of it pointing to the site of multiple as advantage. And we had it mentioned in terms of intersection between uh, sort of politics and um, views about the monologues. So we are, we're, we're intersectional 101. There we go. I like to hear. Now, one question I wanted to ask I really, I'm really taken by this conceptual, the conceptual framework right at the heart of your, your sort of thesis, which is this public-private aphasia and working towards, the, you know, as we all know, second-wave feminism, the personal is political, all that kind of stuff. What I think is fascinating in the Archer's context is the last monster we had was Rob, and yes, that was sort of private menace in the domestic mm. sphere, but publicly he was kind of, well, discussed. Meanwhile, the flipping of um, Philip to be sort of Mr. Lovely. And mm -hmm. put, and the point, what I, what I would like to get to is that the, the um, his uh, raising of Kirsty onto a pedestal at the same time as brutalizing the horses is a different face of the patriarchy, but it, it sits in the same connection between inside and outside. I wonder if, I mean, sorry to spring that on you, it's slightly, um, no, it tells it me those things are connected. Yeah, it, it is super interesting. And what is really interesting about the radio is that you're simultaneously in this inside and outside experience. So in that, you know, you're accessing the character's internal life, but you know things that they don't know. And so it's almost as if you are, you know, they're in you're in their public sphere. Mm. And, and you are you have access to information that they don't so it almost feels like they're being they're being denied their own story um that you know in the same way as that you know we knew what philip was doing but kirsty didn't and you know we sit there for weeks saying but you know this is happening this is happening how can't you see it so we're kind of exposed to the information they're not so it almost feels like we get this like privilege that they don't get so it's this kind of simultaneous inside and outside which acts in really interesting interconnected ways I agree, and I think that, that is kind of the key to it all because, it, and essentially, that flip, right, it, it is the kind of core of genuinely strong fiction. Because the point is, you know, the corollary is oh, brilliant, twirling moustache, very bad, not nice to animals, hits his wife, you know, this sort of black and white notion. I think what's intriguing about both these storylines is 
the sort of everydayness, but exactly this this point about the performance of the self as an actor in one's own realm and as an actor in society and community. The no, the nature of what is the content of the performance, and if the you know the, the notion of the domestic audience being sort of um, you know you're do, you're doubly as you say you mm. you said they're in our you're in their kitchen but they're in your kitchen there's yeah. a recursivity about it which is partly why when we did the research a couple of years ago into who listened where everybody had the experience of doing it washing up you know you put your hands yeah. in the sink and you're listening along there's no other thing that you consume in that way so intimately and you're right to push it that kind of intimacy as far as they did with the Helen and Rob storyline mm pushed us to think again about the things that you described. So I'm really, think, sorry, that was a long way of saying I'm really interested in, in your thing. Um, the, the, what I would like to, to, what I'd like to do is to move to Helen's paper and then have open it up to the floor after the three papers, if that's all right, because I think the link that we made here was this thing about imaginary places and places of the imaginary. It's just, it sort of runs through all three. Yeah. So let's, Helen Burroughs, can you take control of us, please? I'll attempt to. Very good. And are you able to share your screen effectively? Yes, there we go. Marv, take it away. Okay. Yep. Okay, yep. I'm just that's trying to make a slide thing rather than, that's it, there we go. Okay, so to completely uh, misquote Sherlock Holmes, once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be Molly and Tilly Button. In the 1980s, not many people know this, I was a private investigator for about six years. I was even known in the local paper as Loughborough's Miss Marple, the knitting detective, after winning a knitting competition with this teddy bear. So, while thinking this year about the opportunities for Kirsty to uncover the truth about Philip and Gavin's business, I looked at the many mysteries over the year in Ambridge and I decided to investigate. Crime, mystery and intrigue are central to much popular literature and drama, and the figure of the detective, whether police, private or amateur, is an important part of the story. Ambridge has Harrison Burns, but who might be the the amateur investigator, the Miss Marple or Lord Peter Whimsey of Ambridge? Or might anyone fancy a change of career to become the lo local Poirot? Whilst The Archers isn't detective, crime or mystery fiction, it's always had its fair share of mysteries to be solved. It provides a hook for the listener, hence the famous cliffhangers to pull listeners back the following week. So to look at the history of mystery in Ambridge, 1941, 1951, sorry, saw the first amateur investigation recorded in Ambridge. The major event this year was the discovery of ironstone deposits on Fairbrothers land. He called in a mineralogist, Keith Latimer, who began test drillings. Latimer became friendly with Christine Archer. One night, Latimer and Christine saw a saboteur running away from the drilling equipment and found that the diamond bit was missing. Reporter Dick Raymond, accidentally overheard two saboteurs planning another attempt and Dick, Bill Archer and Latimer decided to wait, wait for them. They caught Bill Slater, Peggy's cousin who lodged with Mrs P and Raymond found Latimer's diamond bit in Mrs P's coal shed. 1952 took a slightly surreal turn when it was revealed that Mike Daly and Valerie Grayson were both secret service agents a mysterious Baroness Chorva arrived. And then Charles Grenville's housekeeper, Madame Garon, was exposed by the Borchester Echo as an international diamond smuggler. This is true. 1954 saw the arrival in Ambridge of a character with a green gypsy caravan who was suspected of stealing horses, money from the bull and poaching. He turned out to be John Trigoran and not responsible for any of those things. However, this was an early example of the way that outsiders in the village have been frequently blamed for crimes in what we might see as othering. As another example, in 1959, Walter Gabriel had a biscuit tin of money stolen from his cottage. The money was recovered by Tom Forrest and PC Bryden, who lay in wait at Arkwright Hall and caught a gypsy called Gregory Selden. 
Several mysteries over the years have involved fire. In 1955, famously, Phil and Grace were at dinner at Grey Gables with friends when fire broke out in the stables, resulting in Grace, Grace's death. It's still, to my knowledge, not clear how the fire started. The Dutch barn at Brookfield was burnt down in 1958, and this was blamed on a casual labourer, another example of the othering of outsiders. Continuing the arson line, in 2012, Adam was attacked during farm machinery thefts, and David, as a witness, was threatened by the gang. This came to a head when an arsonist burned down the Brookfield barn. Keith Horobin was forced by the gang into the arson attack, as part of the continuing intimidation and the ongoing mystery was finally solved. A case the police got nowhere with was Matt Crawford's hit and run incident in 2017. Nick Grundy admitted on her deathbed to being the person who hit Matt, but many people still believe it was Justin. I suspect we will never really know. So professional investigations, Borsetshire police have solved a few crimes over the years. This included a two and a half year old Adam being kidnapped and held for ransom in January 1970. The kidnappers snatched Adam in broad daylight and carried him off to Birmingham. The police at first suspected Sid Perks, but rapidly got on the tracks of the real kidnappers and rescued Adam the following day. Police investigations were also successful in 2007 when Owen King, whose real name was Gareth Taylor, was prosecuted for the rape of Cathy Perks and another woman in Bournemouth after he left Ambridge. And although N Nelson Gabriel, despite fairly clear forensic evidence linking him to the Great Borchester mail van robbery, was cleared of all charges, maybe one of the biggest mysteries was where he got all his money from if it wasn't from the robbery. And what exactly did he get up to in South America? So who gets suspected or blamed? Earlier, I mentioned that outsiders in the village were often blamed for crimes, and I referred to this as othering. The blaming of outsiders for crimes or incidents has been a feature of whodunits for a long time. And one of Knox's Ten Commandments of plot devices for honourable detective fiction was against the use of cliched stereotypes for villains. Nevertheless, the tendency remains. Othering is a form of discrimination which can be systemic, almost automatic assumptions being made about groups who are seen as different, who can be outsiders or people within a society who are seen as outside the norm. This in Ambridge has included travellers and gypsies, casual workers, <laughs> members of the Darrington cricket team, silent characters, young people and newcomers to the village. It's not only villagers who make these assumptions. Fans can take on the role of in-group residents of Ambridge as well. In the matter of Fallon's missing bunting, Molly and Tilly Button were blamed, both across the fan base and by many Am Ambridge residents. Joy Horville, Kirsty and Philip's neighbour, has been the subject of much speculation regarding her designs on Tony, whether she was responsible for the thefts of custard creams in the village shop, and there have even been fan discussions about whether she might be herself an undercover investigator looking into the Moss's trading practices. There's also been a mystery since she arrived about her daughter, Rochelle. Now, looking into this, I made an interesting discovery. In 2012, Amy Franks was staying with Alice because of problems with her partner, Carl. Alice used the internet to investigate Carl's background and found that he had a wife called Rochelle. Whether there's any connection here with Joyce's daughter will remain to be seen. So what skills are needed? Detectives need considerable powers of observation and deductive reasoning. In my own experience, observation must include recognising the right opportunities to gather evidence. Deductions like putting together a jigsaw, you must be able to find the missing pieces to add to what's known or suspected. You need to use logic and a certain amount of intuition, though this is often really the benefit of experience. It's important not to be so focused on one aspect of a case that you can't see the wider picture, as with a jigsaw. 
he, I thought, reminded Harrison back in 2017 that he needed to learn to see the bigger picture if he didn't want to spend his career looking for bunting. The use of technology can help. When I was in this line of business, there was no public internet. In searching for people, we used electoral registers, phone books, and microfiche um, new newspaper archives, much easier today. One thing that was helpful was the occasional use of a well-judged alias. I found that as a woman, I could often get information that my male colleague could not, but there were times when I needed to be incognito. I used to use the name Penelope Antrobus, imagining myself as Marjorie Antrobus's young niece and taking my character and tone from her example. And I, I solved several insurance frauds this way. Aliases have also been seen in Ambridge. Linda Snell has used the nom de plume of Dylan Nells, and she first started doing this to check whether the editor of Borsuch Life was refusing to publish her work for personal reasons. Lillian posed as a potential client when investigating Matt's dealings with Melling in equestrian investment. Linda seems drawn to the sleuthing life. In 1995, she hired a PI when she thought Robert was having an affair. In 2010, she organised a murder mystery for the fate, at which Colin Dexter, the author of Inspector Morse, would be the special guest. Vicky Tucker proved to be an expert at quizzing the various characters. Maybe she's working in that field in Birmingham now. In 2017, Linda took on the alias of Harriet Vane, an amateur detective in the Lord Peter Whimsey books, to email the Grundys with a stream of questions about their bed and breakfast, which she felt was threatening her business. Robert was persuaded to pose as Dylan Nels himself once or twice, but he proved himself an expert in using technology to uncover Edmund, a fraudulent bird watcher and newcomer to the village. He used an app that could uncover EXIF data, which is metadata in digital photo files, and proved that Edmund's marvellous photos were not what he claimed, so he could be reported to the Ornithological Society. September 2020 was a very good month for amateur investigations, when Tracy was horrified to find that a fake solicitor's letter had been sent to Philip about her suing him over the explosion at Grey Gables. Realising that the solicitor's names were those of Brad's teachers and their phone number was her dad's, she uncovered the culprit. The same day, Susan tried to catch the custard cream thief in the village shop. Tracy, proud of her investigations earlier, decided that the culprit was Joy, on the grounds that she was a newcomer to the village, talked too much, clear sign of a liar, and looked shifty. Susan suspected Gavin as the theft started around the time he returned to Ambridge. Working as a team, they knew that they needed hard evidence. Tracy used mobile technology to supplement the CCTV, and Susan was embarrassed to discover that the thief was their dad, Bert Horobin. Susan proved her unerring skills at drawing the wrong conclusions when she deduced from an overheard phone call that Gavin, having problem with the horses, um, sorry, meant that he was in difficulties through uh, gambling. David has tried to solve the odd mystery, but generally somebody else ends up doing most of the legwork. In 2020, rubbish belonging to Joy was dumped on Brookfield land. David dumped, jumped to conclusions about the incomer, but it was Ed and Will who, through covert surveillance, discovered that it was Tim Oti. Later that year, there was a major problem with illegal metal detectorists, or nighthawks, at Marnie's. David was concerned, but it was Eddie who resolved it. Eddie used his initiative, partly in self-interest so he could do metal detecting on the site himself, and assumed an alias to go undercover to join the detectorists. He joined their internet forum and discovered their plans. It all goes wrong in the end as they see him talking to David at the site and he gets his tyres slashed, but he scares them off and saves the day. So to conclude, who could be Ambridge's top sleuths? I started off by thinking how Kirsty might have uncovered Philip and Gavin's secret, 
the early questions about the hidden laptop, and in particular, the night Philip was away before Christmas, when she could have easily checked his emails and accounts. And really, I must write her off as any sort of detective. She's definitely clueless rather than Cluso. Susan and Tracy both have their moments and some good investigative skills, but are too quick to jump to conclusions and too keen to make assumptions based on their personal opinions of others. Linda and Eddie, however, show all the attributes of potentially ex excellent investigators. They have the right contacts, imagination, ability to pass themselves off convincingly using an alias. They research and put the time and effort in to achieve what they need to do. Linda has Robert as a useful sidekick with excellent tech skills, so I think she could probably really make a go of it. Eddie tends to get only involved with things that might benefit him, but he has a lot of potential. So there we have our potential Miss Marple, and if not a Poirot in Eddie, then at least a Cormoran strike in the making. And finally, will Harrison ever make it to CID based on his shameful failure to find the bunting thief or uncover who put the llama in his garden and on the basis of his taking Blake's statement in hospital at face value? I rather think not. The moon flowers forward. Thank you very much. Helen, you star. <laughs> Helen, you're wrong, though. The biggest sleuths in, in Ambridge, on Ambridge, are Sally Cadle, you, and Leo Horsmeyer. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's really shocked some of my friends to discover that that actually was what I did for a living in the in the um, in the eighties when when I was oh, in my no friends. no, <laughs> no literally you could say. I work for MI5. I was a knicker saleswoman. We'd just be like, all oh, right, Helen, amazing. I, I, was, I was approached. I was yeah, approached for MI5 and I, I, I declined it. Yeah, nothing would shock me. Nothing. <laughs> we are at three o'clock and we are trying to keep to time today. So I suggest we have a five minute comfort break um, and you can gather your cakes. Um, we're going to move now over to, you can go into two groups, into the orangery or the tea rooms. Um, I'm going to go to one, you're going to go to the other, aren't you, Nicola? So if you follow us out, I go around Paul. Um, we, for Nicola's group, if you want to congregate at the Antrobus Lecture Theatre, uh, you're going to go with um, Eddie in the horse and carts, aren't you? I'm going to go to um, the Elliot Building. Um, and we're going to travel with, so we've got Rex and Josh, Ben, Rory, all of that lot. They've all managed to scrabble cars and diggers and things like that. And so we'll go that way. Um, you're going to, yeah, so we'll, we'll take it there. So split into two groups, but we'll see you back here in about five minutes at the Orangery or Tea Room. Can I, sorry, can I just ask a question about dinner tonight? Yes. Um, because I haven't been to a gala dinner before, so I'm wondering what the format is. Is it a three-course meal? Will we all be served at the same time? Just so that I know to prepare properly. Of course, of course, totally understandable. It's been really good. I've got to say, Felbersham Catering, Felbersham Uni Catering has been fantastic. Okay. Everything's just been tailored to what we've all, you know, our own personal taste. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. So essentially, yeah. the, the format is, it is that we're going to have, we had a slightly unusual step of having our after dinner speech before our dinner. So, oh, well, that's useful to know. So Lucy Freeman will be speaking at about half past six. We'll right. then do some prizes. Um, frankly, you're on your own, scratch together whatever you can find. <laughs> and then, so then, and then normal proceedings are kind of over then. And yeah. then it's a question of, eating and drinking i'm wearing um i'm wearing you know a party dress and high heels okay so you know so, so it's it's a three-course meal starting about half past seven well it's it yes you can you, you do can eat because we can tailor because um because the great gables have been so accommodating as well and so really desperate 
you know, if you wanted to eat at six and then sort of join in, then you can. If you wanted to start at eight, I think that'd be fine. Just if you can let Tracy know on the door. Okay. She'll sort it all out. Well, yeah. We just we can just work out. Yeah. What we want. Yeah, yeah. I didn't yeah. want to be rude and be the only one eating when somebody else. Was oh, no, 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 it's fine. Okay. That's good. Whatever you want. And also, you know, dress, dress in whatever you want. But, I mean, I'm at home, so I might just be in my pajamas to Nicholas' party dress. <laughs> <laughs> can I just check whether there will be gin? Because remember, at Sheffield, there wasn't. <laughs> you, know you know why? Why? I, what I'm saying is Jim and Kate. <laughs> Jim okay. and Kate drank it. <laughs> yeah, I was very cross. I remember. Toby's been, you know, working around the clock on this. I don't know who's been looking after Rosie because um, Jill was doing the cakes and Toby's doing um, the gin. So I think she must be on her own. Uh, but we'll see you back here in five. Yeah, thank you. That's useful to know. Thank you. Uh, What's that, Alison? Um, my question is, do we, need, do we need to leave here and find another code? Because I don't see another code for the next session. Or are there breakout rooms from this, from this uh, centre? Um, hang on a sec. Let me just have a quick look at the email. I oh, don't think there's anything. No, I, I've looked in the email. I've kept that safe. <laughs> no, we um, stay on the same. We stay on the same, same one. I think. Um, okay. Oh, no, 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 it is. No, it is. And, and uh, turn my video off. But I'll stay in here then. No, Thank you, Alison. Alison, yes. it yes, is yes. a new link. It is a new link. Oh, no, right. Only for the dinner, not for now. No, yeah, not, it, you, that's not now. But if you go down, if you go down, it says the. Um, Evening dinner, Grey Gables, oh, and then okay. about four lines below that, there's another link. Yes, but not for not for the tea now, session. Not, now. not not for now, no. That's great. Thank you. You, I thought that was the case. Thank you for reassuring me. That was brilliant talk, Helen. Brilliant. Thank you very much. I missed seeing all the um, the bits on the chat because my my Zoom just crashed as soon, almost oh. as soon as I finished talking. Super. So I'm back in now anyway, but I've, I saved the file uh, of the chat, so hopefully I can read it later. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, right. I've upgraded to the um, Prosecco option for my afternoon tea. Do I pay at the door? I think they've got a rather excellent all-inclusive, Christine. But for some reason, all drinks just seem to be included this weekend. Oh. Quite, quite <laughs> incredible for the conference. <laughs> Frightfully good value. Mm. <laughs> Jack's good. Oh, my God, the chocolate brownie. Mm. The chocolate 